Let's turn to Colossians in chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3. One of the great truths that we read in the Bible is that when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. It's difficult for our minds to comprehend that, but when we recognize that with God there is no such thing as time. We talk about past, present, future, and the death of Christ is in the past, and we're living in the present. But with God there is no past, present, or future. Time is all one for Him. And that's very difficult for us to understand. But that is why the Bible says that before God created the heavens and the earth, He could choose each one of His children by name, even though they were going to live thousands and thousands of years later. And uh, so God, in His foreknowledge, He could look right into the future and see each one of us who's given our life to Christ and he picks us because we responded it's not that he picked names randomly but because he saw that we were going to respond to him thousands of years later it says the Bible says he puts our name in his book in the book of life so then our names were in the book of life before the foundation of the world and uh, then, when Christ died on the cross, all the people whose names were in the book of life were already in God's mind. And God put all of them with Christ on the cross, because they were all in his mind in any case. So that's how we believe that in Christ, I was also there, crucified with him, and raised up with him, when he buried with him, raised up with him. Now, many Christians don't see the. this is the real meaning of baptism. And that's why infant sprinkling is such a deception. Because it takes away the death and resurrection, and burial and resurrection. Real baptism is a burial and a resurrection, and raised up with Christ. It's very important for us to understand this. Most Christians concentrate only on the fact that Christ died for us. But we don't think much of the fact that we are crucified with Christ and raised up with Him. So it says here, <clears throat> if you have been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3 verse 1, what should be the result of that? Then keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So when I'm in Christ, it's not only that I died with Him on the cross, and that I was buried with him I was also raised up with him because I was in God's mind and then if you turn to Ephesians in chapter 2 it says Ephesians chapter 2 that verse 6 when he raised us up with Christ he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ now that's not in the future. Now most of us think we are going to be in heavenly places in the future. But see what the Bible says. Crucified with him, raised up with him, and that when he ascended, because I am in Christ, my union with Christ never changes. You know, when you are gripped by this, and you allow your human way of thinking to die and begin to think like God thinks which is in the scripture he knew me let me repeat he knew me before the worlds were created and he chose me in Christ and when Christ died I died with him because I was in Christ and when I, I was when Christ was buried I was buried when he, Christ was raised up I was raised up because I'm in him and when Christ ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, I'm still in Christ. And that's why it says in Colossians, now if you don't believe that, then of course Colossians 3 has got no value. 
If you have been raised up with Christ and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, then seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and we are in Him. And therefore, that, that is why we set our mind on the things above and not on the things on earth, because I'm my life, I've died to this life and I'm hidden with Christ in God. I believe this is the main reason why many Christians remain defeated and they have such a struggle to give up their attachment to earthly things. Because they haven't taken their position as dead with Christ. Now if you think of a man who is physically dead here, he is not attached to anything on earth. He's finished. He, he was maybe for years attached to earthly things, but the moment he's died, dead, it's over. He's no more bothered about the opinion of his earthly friends, whether they praise him or criticize him. His connection with the earth is broken. Now the wonderful message of the gospel is not just that my sins can be forgiven and I remain as an earthly person, but that my sins can be forgiven and that my connection with the earth can be broken while I'm living here. And that is why, because I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places, I can keep my mind set on the things that are above. And when I accept that position in Christ, then it is easy. If I recognize that I have died, verse 3, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. So, then this verse in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, which you'll never find preachers talking about this verse, because as soon as they read it, they say it's impossible. 1 John 2.6 The one who says he abides in Christ. That means I've recognized that I am in Christ. Then I must walk in the same manner as he walked. So in what way did he walk? Now immediately a lot of people think that he raised the dead and walked on the water. That's not the point. The point is that he walked on earth as a heavenly man, a man whose mind, though he walked on the earth, his mind was set in heaven and pleasing God. And if I take that position in Christ, then I recognize that my calling is to be a heavenly minded person in everything I do. It's as it were God detaches me from the things of this earth, of all of them. The Bible says that the devil is the prince of this world. And he tempted Jesus not only when he was at home, the three temptations mentioned in the wilderness, but throughout his life. And throughout his life is not just that he tempted him to sin, but he tried to tempt him to get his mind on earthly things. You know, he said, if you bow down to me, I'll give you this whole, all the glory of this world. And do you think Jesus was even tempted by that? Not at all. If somebody offered Jesus a billion dollars, he wouldn't be tempted by it. Some All the honor in the world, it didn't tempt him. So, it was a very foolish temptation the devil tried on Jesus. Bow down to me, I'll give you everything in the world. I mean, he didn't have an interest in anything on this world, on this earth, except to save people and bring them into God's kingdom. And that's why at the end of his life he said in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14 and verse 30, the last part of that verse, the ruler of this world, and that's the devil, Jesus himself acknowledged that the ruler of this world is Satan. Jesus has got all authority on heaven and earth, but the ruler of this world is Satan. That's from Jesus' own mouth, he acknowledges and even today the ruler of this earth is Satan. So the ruler of this world has come 
and he has nothing in me. That's a tremendous testimony in those words. For 33 and a half years, the ruler of this world tried to put something of this world into Jesus' mind and he didn't succeed. He never succeeded. He has nothing in me. There's not a single area where the devil could succeed in putting something of the values of this world into the mind of Jesus Christ. So when we say we want to follow Jesus and become like him, this is the challenge. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. To try and remove from my mind all the attachments that I have for the things of the earth which are in my flesh and which I've lived for years enjoying and being attached to and then now to have zero interest in them. That's humanly speaking impossible. And that's why most Christians live with the gospel of Jesus forgives my sin. That's about it. So I believe the second part of the gospel that not only Christ died for my sins that I died with Christ and was buried with him and raised up with him and ascended with him is a part of the gospel which is a major part of the gospel which is almost not preached. I mean you can ask yourself how many times have you heard a sermon on being raised up with Christ and being seated in the heavenly places? I know in my life I never heard anyone speak on it. But it's there in scripture. And it's one part of the gospel that's hidden. Many people have felt that it's in the years when the Roman Catholics were proclaiming the gospel, they never proclaimed that salvation was by faith. And we thought that is a great thing that finally the Protestant church came up proclaiming salvation by faith. That was just the beginning. But a major part of the gospel has never been proclaimed for centuries. And that is the reason for the shallowness of our life. And if I don't recognize this truth and I try to obey the scriptures, I'll find it a constant challenge and difficulty. And that's why a lot of Christians, you know, even in our churches who listen to the standards of the gospel, they try, they sincerely try, but they never come there. Because they have not taken their place which God has given them in Christ. You know, just like our eyes need to be opened one day to see that all my sins were placed on Christ. I never saw it. I never saw Jesus dying on the cross. I never saw my sins being placed on him on the cross. I have accepted it 100% by faith. And that's how all of you have accepted it too. And you're absolutely sure that your sins are forgiven. You don't have any doubt about it. In the same way, you can be absolutely sure that you also, your old man was crucified with Christ and you are raised up to be a new person and that spiritually speaking God has already transported you to heaven so that you look at earthly things the way Jesus looked at them. For Paul this was a very real thing and when you see a challenge like this in the gospel, in the New Testament, we must not rest until it becomes real in our life. Just like the assurance of salvation. For many, many years I never had assurance of salvation that my sins were forgiven, even that basic thing. But I would not have progressed in my life if I didn't get that assurance. And I'm thankful that I got that assurance one day. My sins are all forgiven. Absolutely sure that nobody could take it out of my mind. And not only that I was forgiven, that God has blotted it out. That's such a relief to know that all my past is not only forgiven, but that God doesn't even remember it. In the same way, once I'm convinced about this other truth, like Paul was, that God has placed me in Christ and cut me off from the world, that connection is broken. Then we'll be able to say like Paul in Galatians 6:14. In Galatians 6 and verse 14 he says, I will not glory in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because by that cross the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. We all know what a big struggle it is for us to, when the Bible says, love not the world 
or the things in the world. It is a tremendous struggle. For most Christians it is a struggle to give up the love of money or the love of the praise of men or the love of sinful pleasure. The Bible even speaks in Philippians 3 about some people whose stomach is their God. The love of good food to such an extent that it has become an idol. The Bible speaks about food becoming an idol. In Philippians 3 verse 19 onwards. And money is an idol for many people. Position and honor. But Paul says, I've died. That, like that dead man is not a slave to anything that this world can attract him, try to attract him with. Paul says, it's as real my crucifixion of the world. Now, I believe he's speaking the truth. And like the living Bible says, I have, this verse he reads like this, I have now as little interest in this world as the dead man has. It's quite a paraphrase. That's really what it means. I have as little interest in this world as a dead man has. Uh, is that something we read and say, Lord, I want to be like that. That is the real Christian life. Many of our problems, anxieties, fears will go when we take that place. And even if it takes a while to get there, say, Lord, I want to get there. I want to get to that place where Paul's testimony is mine. That I live in the world, but nothing in this world attracts me. What God gives me, I take. If he gives me little, I'm happy. I don't compare myself with somebody else who has more. I don't feel it's impossible to be jealous of somebody who has more honor or more wealth or more good-looking than I am. So many things Christians are disturbed by because there are the things of the world have an attraction for him. His sins are forgiven. But he's never allowed this to be crucified with Christ to the world and so he's constantly struggling and constantly defeated. And he's hoping one day maybe I will experience this life that some other Christians talk about. You'll never experience it if you don't ask God to make this real in your life. Lord, make it real to in my life that as Christ died, I've died. And as he rose up and he was detached from the world, I've been detached. And I've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The world has no more any attraction for me. And so like it says in Colossians 3, the verse we started with, let your mind be set on the things that are above and not on the things on the earth. So I look at it like this, it's like, you know, when you go up in an aeroplane, so many of the things on earth become very, very small. Houses look like tiny, smaller than toy houses. So many people are concerned about a good house. And when you get up into the air, there's not much difference between that big house and the small one. So many people are interested in the type of car they're going to buy. You get up into the air, right, about 30,000 feet. There's not much difference between these fancy cars and the ordinary ones. They're all small, little, small, teeny-weeny dots on the ground. And I believe that's what happens when we move up into the heavenly places. Everything on earth becomes very small. And the things of eternity become more real. And I believe that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit to lift us up into that place with Christ so that I look at everything from heaven's standpoint. There are many things which we can say which are attractive on the earth. Money, physical pleasure, the honor of men and all of these things could never attract Jesus. He was tempted it rolled off him like water off a duck's back because he was heavenly minded throughout. And our service for God can never be what it should be if I do not take this heaven, heavenly position. This is the main difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We talk about being a new covenant church and we speak so much about the new covenant perhaps more than any other church. 
But what is the essential difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? It is not just that in the Old Covenant they had forgiveness of sins. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your sins. In the New Covenant we have victory over sin. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 But more than that, the entire Old Covenant from Genesis to Malachi was an earthly covenant. Every blessing that God promised to Israel, every one of them, from A to Z, was earthly. They would have earthly wealth, they'd have many earthly children, they would have earthly prosperity in lands and cattle, and they'd have victory over earthly enemies, the hev- everything was of earth. There's not a single promise there in the entire Old Covenant of anything heavenly. Zero. Healing was earthly, from earthly sicknesses. And the whole thing shifts in the New Covenant to heavenly. That now it's heavenly wealth, not earthly wealth. And that's why Jesus and Paul and all had very little earthly wealth, but they were extremely rich with heavenly wealth. And whereas it's not primarily physical healing, it's probably the the people in Israel probably experience more healing than Christians have experienced. A lot of Christians, godly Christians are sick. The greatest apostle Paul, he himself was sick. And yet there were tremendous promises under the old covenant that God would heal sicknesses, but Paul was never healed. Because it's not physical sickness that's the main thing. It's spiritual sickness. Even this verse, there's a verse in Isaiah 53, uh, which is quoted in 1 Peter You know, it's a well-known verse. One Peter, chapter two, verse twenty-four. By his stripes we have been healed. See, that's a Old Testament quotation from Isaiah fifty-three and verse five. By his stripes we are healed. It's the verse that a lot of Pentecostals quote to tell people you are healed and 99.9% of them are not healed. How can that be that a scripture is not fulfilled? Because they are misquoting it. Here it says, read carefully, 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin what are we to die to? not sickness but to sin and live to righteousness not to physical health but righteousness because his wounds have healed you wounds have healed you from what? from sin to be righteous it is so crystal clear in that verse how that which was Physical healing in the Old Testament is spiritual healing now. I'm not saying God doesn't heal. But if you don't look at scripture exactly like it says, we will be believing an unreal gospel. Does Jesus heal heal the sick? He does, but not everyone. And you look around, you see it's true. And you look in in your own life. I mean, if I confess my sin today, this moment, my sin is forgiven immediately. There's not a slightest doubt about it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't have to wait one second for my sin to be forgiven. Now, if the promise of healing, which many Pentecostals and Charismatics preach, is like that, the moment he prays in faith, he should be healed. But it never happens. And yet they blindly keep on believing it. They say, no, keep confessing, confessing it, it'll happen maybe after one year or something like that. That's a lot of rubbish. God in mercy does heal, I know that. I've experienced it myself in answer to prayer. But, it's a fact that he doesn't heal everybody. There are multitudes of 
sick people, uh, of godly Christians who are paralyzed and who got sicknesses, why aren't they healed? They are ten times more godly than many other people who are healthy. It's because they have misinterpreted scripture and they have not understood the old covenant is an earthly physical covenant and the new covenant is spiritual and heavenly. So we got to be realistic. We must not believe a false gospel or believe a false teaching. Now don't let me discourage you from praying for healing. Every time I'm sick I pray for healing without a doubt. And many times I've got answers to prayer. So I'm not saying we should not pray. Please understand me correctly. But I see in scripture that the great apostle Paul, he prayed for healing three times and God said no. But I'll give you grace and my grace will be able to help you to overcome that limitation. So that's what I, and Timothy, Paul's closest co-worker, we read in 1 Timothy 5.21, he had frequent stomach ailments. And Paul says there's no one of my co-workers who's as wholehearted as Timothy. The most godly and wholehearted of Paul's co-workers was sick with a stomach ailment he was never healed from. Can you imagine the number of times Paul laid his hand on his head and prayed for him? It was a thorn in his flesh. So, but I'm sure Timothy got grace, sufficient for him, just like Paul got it. So this has been my principle whenever I get sick, in small sickness or anything, I say, Lord, like Paul, I will pray for healing. If you don't give it to me, I'm not going to be stubborn, because I'm under the new covenant, but then you must give me grace. So I want one of the two, either healing or grace, to conquer it and make this thing turn out to be something good for me. And I've experienced that too, where some earthly limitations or sickness turns out for profit. So if you take that position, you'll always be a conqueror. You'll never be discouraged that God didn't answer my prayer because my prayer is, Lord, you either heal me or give me grace to overcome that and which is better. Now if you think healing is better, give me healing. And sometimes God does that also. And if you think in some other times, no, he doesn't want to heal me, he wants to give me grace. If that God sees is better, I accept it. And I'll tell you, if you take this scriptural position in this matter of healing, you'll never be disappointed. I'm never disappointed when I pray for healing because I'm not stubborn. I know what the new covenant promises me, spiritual healing and blessing, and I say, either heal me or give me grace. And always I'll get one of the two. I mean, I'm trying to show you scripture that uh, so many people have misunderstood, they read articles and magazines and get completely sidetracked because they have not understood that we are meant to be a heavenly minded people. The new covenant is heavenly blessing. It's not material wealth, it's spiritual wealth. Spiritual wealth is the likeness of Christ. Now it's a choice. Do you want more money or do you want to become more like Christ? I have absolutely no doubt in my mind about my choice. Lord, definitely I want to be more like Christ. And every Christian needs to ask himself, supposing God were to give you a choice. Okay, you're a Christian, you're born again, you're on your way to heaven now. In your further life, do you want a lot more money? Or do you want to become more like Christ? What will you choose? You've got to be honest with God. Ask yourself. Be absolutely honest and say, which will you choose? Are you happy to be a little less... You're going to heaven in any case. That's settled. But it doesn't matter if I don't grow spiritually so much. I can have a little more money. I tell you, that is what most Christians choose. And that's why they remain carnal till the end of their lives. They never become the heavenly minded Christians that... God wants them to be. And when are they going to discover how much they have lost when they stand face to face with Jesus one day? And they'll say, wow, what a fool I was to choose the temporary passing things of earth and have suffer a loss for all eternity. Well, you go to heaven, alright, but there's still... I don't understand what it means, but there's going to be some type of loss that believers are going to have for all eternity in heaven. Because they chose earthly things instead of the heavenly things. They chose to be under the old covenant instead of the new covenant. This is very real. I mean, if you read the New Testament with this perspective, it's completely different. There's a message in every page for us. There's nothing which doesn't fit into plus. It's like a, every part of the 
every piece of the puzzle fits in perfectly. And so here is something that we must really ask God to make clear to us. Lord, I want to know clearly what it means to be united with Christ. It's one of the great themes of the Apostle Paul. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he never spoke about it. Never once did he tell people, he said, I'm going to die for your sins. That he made repeatedly said, I've come to earth to die for you, to die for you, die for you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But never once did Jesus say, you are going to be in me when I die. Why didn't he say that? Didn't he know it? Of course he knew it. You see the reason in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel and chapter 16 verse 12 is a very precious passage of scripture if you meditate not on seriously John chapter 16 verses 12 to 15 one of the main purposes of the gift of the Holy Spirit it is not speaking in tongues primarily that's secondary I have many more things to say to you. But let me paraphrase it. You cannot understand them now. It's like trying to teach college mathematics to a kindergarten student. What can he understand? And you tell that kindergarten student, do you know there's a lot more in mathematics than 2 plus 2 is 4 and 3 plus 3 is 6? But you're in the kindergarten, my five-year-old's boy. You can't understand it now. But if you're wholehearted and you progress, you will understand it one day. That's what he was saying. I have many things to say to you. But you cannot understand now. But it won't be like this forever. When the Spirit of Truth, when the Holy Spirit has come and comes inside you, See, right now the Holy Spirit is outside. Throughout the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was outside. But when He comes inside you, He will guide you inwardly into all the truth. The entire truth, 100%, the full circle. Now you see only a small segment of it. You know, you draw a circle and there's a small segment of that circle painted. That's forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, that's all I can tell you. There's a whole lot more in that circle which you cannot, even if I tell you, you won't understand it. It's like, as I said, teaching PhD mathematics to a five-year-old kid in the kindergarten. It's all correct, but what does he understand? So Jesus could have explained it. Everything that you read in Romans 6 and Colossians 3, he could have said it. They wouldn't have understood a word of it. You cannot understand it now, but when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And what is he going to do? See in verse 14, he will take, in the middle of that verse, He will take of the things of mine and reveal it to you. Inward things. You don't need the Holy Spirit to understand the outward things that Jesus did. He healed the sick. You can be an atheist and read the Bible and know that. You can be an atheist and know that He walked on the water, He healed the sick and He raised the dead and multiplied the loaves and every earthly miracle. You can be an atheist and understand it. But there are certain things which he says you cannot understand till the Holy Spirit comes inside you. Those are not these outward things. The inward things. And I've come to see this through in these past years that Christians who are concerned about their external testimony only, in other words, who are only concerned about am I making a good impression on other people in my church with my Christianity? Do I have a good testimony before others as a Christian? Do people think I'm a good Christian? Their Christian life is concentrated on the external. They will only see the external Christ. That's right. He washed the feet. He was kind. He helped the poor. Yeah, yeah, they'll do all that. The external things. And most Christians see only the external Christ. The inner Christ, how he lived in with the values he had inside, that will be revealed to those Christians who are more interested in their inner walk with God than what other people think about them. And you need to ask yourself, 
Are you more interested in your inner walk with God every day or the impression you make on others in the church and what impression they have? That will determine whether you understand the inner things of Christ or you will only see the outer things. And even when you come to listen to a message, <clears throat> you will only hear the outer, outer side of it and you won't understand the inside of it because you are not in, interested in an internal walk with God. It all depends on how eager we are to be heavenly minded inside. God gives us according to our desire, according to the intensity of our desire. And then he goes on to say, all things that the Father are mine, therefore I said, he repeated the thing again in verse 15, the Holy Spirit will take of mine and disclose it to you. Disclose means reveal. It's hidden. He will reveal it to you. And so when I read the epistles, and I read I am crucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6, in Christ, in baptism, I am buried with Christ and raised again. That's Jesus speaking to me. It's not Paul. It's the Holy Spirit revealing the things that Jesus did not say in the Gospels because they couldn't understand him. He could have said all that. Everything written in the epistles, for example, the fact that in Jesus' earthly life he was tempted every day with every single temptation that we are tempted with. Why isn't that written in the Gospels? It's one of the most fantastic truths in the New Testament. Why isn't it written in the Gospels? He says, you cannot understand it. Because their whole life was occupied with the external. And the proof of that is that even after walking with Jesus for three and a half years at the Last Supper, what are they discussing? They're discussing that, okay, now a leader is going to die. Who's going to be the next leader? Can you imagine that? Jesus says, I'm going to go to die. And they're, they're not feeling sorry about that. They're discussing who's going to take over now the leadership of this group. All of them. They were discussing who's the greatest among them. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three and a half years and still arguing about whether you're greater than the other Christian? I don't despise them. If you were a disciple of Jesus, you would have been exactly like that. It's the Holy Spirit that has made the difference. Why even today there are people who claim who are Christians who are still comparing themselves with others, always comparing, am I better than that person and wanting to prove that they are better? The people who want to show that I can preach better than you or I can sing better than you or I can do things better than you and who do something for the Lord and want honor for it. What is the difference between them and those disciples sitting at the Last Supper without the Holy Spirit? Exactly the same. But when the Holy Spirit fills us, it becomes very, very different. You know, like we sang in that song, Heaven came down. I believe that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit brought the Spirit of Heaven down into the hearts of those apostles. That they would not be fighting with each other to see who is going to be the leader. They were glad to let the other person be the leader. They had the Spirit of Christ within them. And that's why the most important message in the New Testament is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why this one doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the one which Satan has brought maximum confusion in, in Christendom. There's no doctrine that has brought more confusion in people's minds. They're going after all types of gimmicks, all types of strange things and calling it the Holy Spirit. And everything is external. Whether it's speaking in tongues or rolling on the ground or yelling and kicking and screaming and all types of things, all external. Where, does, where do we hear of people saying that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit within, something is going to happen within? He will get rid of the anger within. He will get rid of your jealousy within. He will get rid of your love of money within. He will get rid of wrong attitudes to people within. He will get rid of that unforgiving attitude within. You won't have to struggle to forgive somebody. You, you do that because you don't allow the Holy Spirit to rule within you. You think people in heaven have any trouble struggling to forgive somebody? Not at all. And if I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that's what happens. And so what we read in Colossians 3, 
is a challenge. Set your mind on things above. You know, I find very often that the scripture puts a challenge before us, but it doesn't tell us immediately how we can get there. Okay. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Colossians 3.2 which we just read. How are you going to do it? The Bible says you've got to have your mind set on the things above all the time and not on the things of earth. I say, fine Lord, but how am I going to do it? Some people are never seeking how to do it. They say, okay, they try, try, try. It's like, to me it is just like trying to get your sins forgiven by your own effort. It doesn't work. I thought of that when I read the Sermon on, sermon on the Mount, you know. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're sincerely reading it, believing that these are the words of Jesus, now let me read it to you and try and understand it, what I'm trying to point out here. First we begin with Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness is greater than, surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So we've got to stop there a moment and say, do you really believe that? The Pharisees had a pretty high standard of external righteousness. They fasted twice a week, they prayed three times a day, and they gave 10% of all their income. And what does it mean for your righteousness to exceed that? And we don't have, we are not left in any doubt. The Lord says, I'll explain to you exactly what I said. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an explanation of that verse. He's saying the Pharisees have an old covenant righteousness. You need to have something greater than that, which is a new covenant righteousness. That is what surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he says, I'll explain it. For example, old covenant righteousness in verse 21 is don't commit murder. New covenant righteousness is inward murder. Don't get angry. Verse 22. Old covenant righteousness, verse 27, is don't commit external adultery. New covenant righteousness, in verse 28, is don't commit internal adultery. See how Jesus is explaining how your righteousness must be superior to the Pharisees. Theirs is external. Yours must be internal. Again, old covenant righteousness, verse 33, is when you take an oath, you must speak the truth. It's external. You put your hand on a Bible, I'm not going to speak the truth. But Jesus says no. You, When you say yes, verse 37, it must be yes. You don't need to put your hand on a Bible or take a vow or any such thing. Inwardly, you are a truthful person. In the same way, in the old covenant, the law was you, if a neighbor strikes you, takes out one eye, take out his eye. The meaning is don't take out both eyes, take out only one. Because, but they misunderstood it, that if he takes out one eye, I've got to take out his eye. But Jesus says, no, I've, in the new covenant, you forgive the person. And it goes on in chapter 6. In the old covenant, the emphasis was on prayer. And the new covenant, the emphasis is, how do you do it? Not how much you pray, but how you pray. There's a lot of difference. But even today I find a lot of Christians emphasize how much you pray. Do you pray for two hours or three hours? That's not, never Jesus emphasized that. He emphasized how do you pray? Do you pray in secret with only God seeing? Or do you pray in a way that you want other people to know? That's the emphasis. It's always the inner life, not the external. And yet I find a lot of Christians boasting about how many hours they pray. Or fasting. Not how many days you fasted, but is it hidden so that people don't know? Or giving money. It's all there in Matthew 6. Not how much you give, but is it secret? Is it before God? So, and there's such a high standard. For example, you, it says you can't serve God in money, verse 24. Don't be anxious. So many things here which are such a high standard. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... You say, all right, Lord, now you've explained how our righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. It must be heavenly and not earthly. Now at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, my question is, how in the world do I have this? Many people don't ask that question. 
They read through it, they say, oh, well, this is impossible to keep it, let's move on, read the next chapter. But a sincere Christian, he reads this and says, Jesus meant what he said, now how in the world can I get it, Lord? And the answer is here. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and it will be opened. Seek, and you will find. So you have to earnestly seek and ask and knock for this. And it comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that is how even what we see in Colossians is like a challenge like the Sermon on the Mount. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. The sincere Christian who is absolutely honest, and if you are honest you will say the same thing. That's what I said. I said, Lord, I find it very difficult. My mind is always coming back to the earthly things. I'm not talking about our secular work. I'm talking about our values. We have to do our secular work. Jesus also, when he was a carpenter, he was, very, he was concentrating on what he was doing as a carpenter. So I'm not talking about not concentrating on our work. I'm saying where we set our values. I said, Lord, I always want to have my values set on heaven. How is it possible? How can I reckon myself to be dead to this world? And how can I come to the place where the world has no more interest in me like a dead man doesn't have interest? And when I seek God like that, He will tell me, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I see everything in the New Testament is like a challenge. And God is waiting to see how many people will now see this and say, I want it. I believe this is what you want, but I'm not able to attain it. Lord, do do something for me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. So I believe the entire New Testament is written in such a way and God is testing to see how many people will take this seriously. And that's one. And secondly, recognize they cannot attain it and not just give up like some people. Many Christians read it and say, that's impossible, let's forget it. I'm accepted in Christ, I'm going to heaven, that's it. But there are others who say, God, God couldn't have wasted so many pages writing all this just to teach us that it's impossible. They say, no, it's possible, but there must be something here which I'm missing. Yes. When you ask God, He'll show you. It's by being filled with the Holy Spirit. The, heaven comes, the Holy Spirit brings the atmosphere of heaven into our hearts. It is not something you struggle and get. It's like, it's not by fishing all night. No, it's by casting the net on the right side and the Lord fills, the, fills our heart with the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful life. I can tell you and I don't believe God wants any of us to miss it. I pray that as we read the scriptures it will produce in us a hunger and a thirst for this life. If you can read passages like this and just move on to the next verse. Then God sees you are not really passionate about this life. For example, one verse, Colossians 3, two, Colossians 3, 2, just one verse. Set your mind, set means fix it there, on the things above and not on the things of earth. Lord, how in the world can I do it? How can I have this heavenly minded value system all the time while I am doing my earthly work? How can I be free from the love of money? free from the love of honor, free from the love of earthly praise, completely undisturbed by the criticisms of men or what they speak behind my back. And People in heaven are not bothered about what people are going to speak about them on earth. Imagine being like that. Is it possible? The devil says no. The Bible says yes. There are very, very few people I have met in my life, I'll tell you who are genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit and live by these values. But there are some. And I believe that all of us can come there. The Bible says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and there is no partiality with him. If you can believe that there is no partiality with God, what he's done for one person, he'll do for you. Like we sing in that song, what he did for Jesus he will do for you. The Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to walk on earth as a heavenly minded person. Keep that in mind when you sing that. What he did for Jesus, he will do for me. Do I believe that? Yes. If I am eager to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And even after being a Christian for 60 years, I find I find a great longing in my heart today. More and more I say, Lord, I want this life at any cost. I want to live this life because I know this is the only thing that will save me from regret at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for zero regret at the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, there are a lot of things in my past life I regret. I can't do anything about it that. But at least from the time I've got light, Lord, I don't want any regret at the judgment seat of Christ. I've heard so much, and particularly you folks who have come to this church and heard so much, at least from now on, would say, Lord, for the rest of my life I want to live in such a way that I don't have any regret about how I lived, at least from today. That when when it's all evaluated in the final day, at the judgment seat of Christ, I say, from a certain day onwards, I have no regret about the way I lived. I lived in triumph in Christ because He really made me a heavenly minded person. It's possible, I hope all of you will believe it, that's the first step. And once you believe, you thirst for it and long for it, there's no partiality. What He did for Jesus, He will do for you. As He cared for Jesus, He will care for you. I remember how my life was changed when I believed that truth. May God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us never to forget what your Holy Spirit is trying to say to us. There's so much of confusion the devil has brought into this world among Christians, making them doubt page after page of scripture, verse after verse, saying this is impossible, impossible, impossible. We want to resist the devil and say everything you have promised is possible. Everything you have commanded is possible. And we want to be a living testimony to the fact that what you have commanded is possible in our life. Help us, Lord, to be men and women like that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.